First Peter chapter three. First Peter chapter three. Our theme this year is I love church, love my church, love God's church. And we never want to take it for granted. What we have is something special. And there are other people, they have something very special because they have a local church. And, you know, that means a a great deal. Early on in the church, when someone got saved and became part of the church, they sort of struggled with the idea that, well, we can't keep everybody from the whole world. I mean, they've got to, you know, you can't isolate them from everything going around. And, you know, it takes a little while to realize the world has nothing to offer us that's of any value. I mean, you think that, boy, they're really sharp, they're uh, more intelligent. It's just not true. They do things better, not necessarily. What we have with the Lord, we have everything we need. That doesn't mean you can't play baseball and you can't go shopping. It doesn't mean that at all. It just means the world does not have a culture that benefits a Christian whatsoever. It just doesn't help us at all. And so, yeah, you can be more isolated. But we don't want to neglect the world. We want to reach the world. We don't want to be like the world. We're in the world, but not of the world. But we want to reach the world with the gospel. So the Bible explains it. I think it's clear. It's just it takes a while for us to adjust to it, to understand that truth. Because the world has such a grip upon us. And I don't think we realize how much the world has a grip on our lives. I don't think we even know. But you you just drive down the road and you see billboards and signs and you hear music. You you know, on television and social media and the people you meet. You go to a grocery store or a restaurant that you, you can't get away from it. You're influenced to some degree by the world. If you were to totally just go away and hide somewhere, go to northern Canada somewhere and uh, homestead for about a year. You have no television, no telephone. And you came back into the world, you'd be shocked. But we kind of get synthesized to what goes on around us. Tonight I want to talk about modesty of the heart. And we'll explain what we mean by that. 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 1. Likewise, you wives, be in subjection to your own husbands, that if any obey not the word, they also may without the word be won by the conversation of their, their wives. Now, the word conversation doesn't mean conversing, talking. It's talking about a lifestyle, by your, the way you live. So your lifestyle will have an impact. It'll preach a sermon. Verse 2, while they behold your chaste conversation coupled with fear. That word chaste means pure from every fault, immaculate, far from carnality, modest. That's what the word means. By, and it comes from the word holy. So that will have some impact on people's lives because they see how you live. We have, right now we're in the middle of all the those basketball games and different people come from the outside and particularly you know, I, I like to talk to referees and I meet the referees and they, they say, we love to come here. Now, why do they love to come here as opposed to somewhere else? Because they see something that's different. Right. 
they hear something that's different. They sense something that is unique that they do not see other places. They say, we love to come here. Why? Because the church is unique. It's different. It's a peculiar people. That's the way it ought to be. Verse 3, whose adorning, let it not be the outward adorning of plating of the hair and of wearing of gold or of putting on of apparel, but let it be the hidden man of the heart and that which is not corruptible, even the ornament of a meek and quiet spirit, which is in the sight of God of great price. So it is the inner man. The hidden man is the inner man, the spiritual part of the individual. You can see in the heart of man. We'll elaborate on that. But the outside could give the wrong appearance. You might think if someone conformed outward, they look the part. But if it's not inward, it's not real. If modesty comes from the heart, the adorning comes from the inner man. And so they can see that inner person knit will be manifest. Now, it could be faked by just conforming the outer part of a person's life, just like the Pharisees did. Outwardly, they look spiritual. And they would do things in such a way to impress people. Look at how spiritual that we are. Put bells on their uh, robe and pray long prayers and fast twice in a week. I mean, there were things that they did and they wanted people to know, here's what I do. So you can try to conform the outside, but It's of no value because it comes from the inside. The inside will conform the outside, but you can conform the outside to give that appearance without it really be the real thing in your heart. So the hidden man or the inner person. So verse 5 says, After this manner in the old time, the holy women also who trusted in God adorned themselves, being in subjection unto their own husbands, Even as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, whose daughters ye are as long as you do well, and are not afraid with any amazement. Likewise, ye husbands, dwell with them according to knowledge, giving honor unto the wife, as unto the weaker vessel, and as being heirs together of the grace of life, that your prayers be not hindered. Finally, be all of one mind, having compassion one of another. Love as brethren, be pitiful, be courteous. God expects His people to be holy. It's a command. Be holy as I'm holy. Now, sometimes it seems futile because we know we're not as holy as we should be. But that's the command. That should be our goal. That should be our desire to live a holy life, a godly life. But how do we become holy? It begins in the heart of man. So what is the heart of man? I think sometimes we don't understand what that means. Man is a tripartite being. We have body, soul, and spirit. So as you read through the Bible, you'll see the distinction of, uh, of man being in those three parts. But it is the soul that communicates with the world around us. And it is through the soul that we have the mind, spirit, uh, emotions, and will. But it is the mind where this battle goes on. So the very heart of being, of our, who we are, and the decisions that are made is in the mind of each individual. It is not in the heart that pumps in our chest, but in the mind of a person. The battle is for the mind. So we have the mind, will, and emotions. The will can make a determination, I'm going to do what's right. The mind can follow along and say, all right, 
I've made that decision, I'm going to do it, so now I'm going to think it through. Yeah, I see it's right. Then the emotions come along. If you get out of order and you live by your emotions, you're going to be up and down. And if every little thing that happens in your life, you get all upset and, and, and out of sorts because of it, you're not living by the will, the mind, and emotions. You're living by the emotions and then perhaps the mind and the will after that. So the decisions we make in following God require us to, in our mind, have a mind that is made right with God, that thinks holy, thinks right, and does right. So is our mind controlled by the Holy Spirit? Tim LaHaye wrote a book, The Spirit-Controlled Temperament. Maybe you've seen that before, and I think there's a lot of value in what he has to say, but our mind must be controlled by the Holy Spirit, filling our mind with the right things. So holiness comes from the heart. But what is holiness? What does that mean? He said, be holy as I'm holy. What does that mean to be holy? I'm going to read a couple of verses out of the Old Testament, and I'll give you a moment to turn to it. First Chronicles Chapter 16, it's a large book, it shouldn't be too hard to find. First, second Samuel, first, second Kings, and then first, second Chronicles. First Chronicles 16. And verse 29. Give unto the Lord the glory due unto his name. Bring an offering and come before him. Worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. The idea in the Old Testament during the time of the kings was we need to worship God. And it all related to holiness in worshiping him. So worship him in holiness. Go to 2 Chronicles. Verse 20. 2 Chronicles 20 and verse 21. And when he had consulted with the people, he appointed singers unto the Lord that should praise the beauty of holiness. As they went out before the army and to say, praise the Lord for his mercy endureth forever. When you go through the Psalms, you see the words, praise the Lord, praise ye the Lord. Psalm 117, that's basically what it says. But many times that reference is made to praise the Lord. The idea is that everything about God is holy righteous, pure, right. There is no error. It it is all truth about him. And he's asking us to worship him in that way because of his holiness. And when we recognize what it means to be holy, we have to say, I'm undone. I'm not holy. I'm not that way. Oh God, purify my heart. Purify my mind. Fill me with thy word. Again, I think we can be so influenced by the world around us and by the apathy or lethargy or the compromise of our day and hour that somehow we feel a little bit comfortable because we're not as bad as everybody else. But when he talks about holiness, it's to be like him, an expression of godliness, godlikeness. And the heart has been affected by the fall of man. Jeremiah, we know the verse that The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? So the heart is deceitful. And we're talking again about the mind. We can be deceived and think that we're good when we're not or think we're holy when we're not holy or think something is right when it's not right. 
we can be deceived, but our mind can be renewed. Now we have to ask God to search us. We have to be humble. We have to seek God that, Lord, show me or reveal to me things that are not right. When man was created, we were created in the image of God and His likeness in, uh, in, in the matter of wisdom or knowledge and the matter of holiness. There is a morality about man that is instilled that man knows in his heart, I did something wrong. Animals don't necessarily know that. But a man knows, I I've, I've violated something, I've done something wrong. But it's tainted, it's not pure, it's not the way it was at creation because of the fall of man. So there's a various levels of people who have been... Uh, affected by the fall that some, you know, they, they're terribly wicked and far from God. Others may be self-righteous and others that think they are and they try to live that way, but yet they're not. So the idea is when we get saved, there's an element of sanctification or holiness that comes into our life. One of the first things that happens, you get saved, you say, I've got to change some things. <clears throat> I, I think most of us say, I've got three things and if I solve those problems in my life, then I'm going to be all set. I've got three serious problems. If I can deal with those three problems, then I'm going to be holy. And you start working on those three things. Maybe you resolve one of them or two of them, and you're still working on one of them, and suddenly you realize you don't have three things, you've got six things. And then you start working on all those things, and maybe resolve a couple more of them, and then you stop and realize, I don't have six things, I've got 12 things. And the longer you live the more you realize it's far more than six and 12 things. Our whole heart and life's been tainted by sin, and we have to humble ourselves before God and say, God, I don't know anything. I need you. I need your help. And we do that, we become reliant on Him. And that's how we become more like Him. But when we're not reliant on Him, we say, I know how to live the Christian life. I can do this. When we do that, we're back in our own power. It's in the flesh. So modesty of the heart or mind comes from humbling ourselves before him. Out of the heart proceed evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, blasphemies. But the heart can be renewed. When it says in Ephesians, put on the new man. In Colossians, it talks about uh, that new relationship. You're a new creature, says in Corinthians. So as a new believer at putting on the new man, put off the old, we become more like him. There's something transpiring in our lives that we used to be that way, but we're changing. We're becoming more like him. So there is a process of sanctification. It happens immediately, instantaneously, but not to perfection. And as we yield and surrender and grow and learn, stumble and fall, get back up again, we learn, I need to do this. I need to trust the Lord more. And I realize in me, and as in my flesh dwelleth no good thing, and that we're reminded of that again and again. We need Him, His presence, and His power. So true godliness, holiness, has to be instilled in our heart and our mind so that what we do, what we think, how we act, comes as a result of what is in that mind. And if it's not God working and doing something in us, then we're living in the flesh and our own power, not his righteousness. 
So there has to be a renewing of the mind through the Spirit of God. There is evidence of a pure heart, someone that has changed, someone that is trying to live a righteous life. Paul writing to Timothy in 2 Timothy 2.22, he said, Flee also youthful lust, but follow after righteousness, faith, charity, peace, and them that call on the Lord out of a pure heart. So we have to be around the right people, think the right things, read the right material. All those things are crucial. But when we're tainted by the world, we're filling our mind with the wrong things, and that hinders the modesty of the heart. So again, flee those things, but follow righteousness, follow faith, charity, peace. And we fill our mind with all those things. When you're busy and you're active, you're going forward in your Christian life, you don't have time for the devil. I'm just going to keep following and pressing on. That's our goal, and that's the way we start the day. That's the way we should end the day. There is something that you can notice about people that they have, everybody has a countenance. I don't suppose that children would understand what that means necessarily, but as a parent, you know, and they don't realize you know. A lot of children, you can tell when they're lying by just looking at their face. Some are pretty good at hiding it. But a lot of them, you can tell. You can see in their face. You see in their countenance you're, they're lying. I can tell. You can meet some people and they just look really sad. We were in North Carolina at the Sword of the Lord National Conference and we went out to eat with some people from the church and this waitress came up and she just looked really sad. And I said something to her that, you know, you're having a bad day and she just fell apart. My wife said, why did you do that? What? <laughs> But was able to talk to her, encourage her, and give her some hope in her life. But she'd been going through some things. You could tell by her countenance. Do you know you can meet some people? They may walk through this door for the first time. They come into church. And you can tell by their countenance. I think they're a believer. And probably you're right. There's a peace in their countenance. You know, there are certain people you can meet and you just enjoy being around. You can just tell by there's something about it that... That, that they're wearing Christ in their life. It is a hidden man of the heart. And it comes out through the person's countenance. The opposite is true. Isaiah said, The show of their countenance doth witness against them. And they declare their sin as Sodom. They hide it not. Woe unto their soul. For they have rewarded evil unto themselves. So if somebody's angry, mad, unhappy... You can usually tell. I know some more than others, but it's amazing how through the countenance you can tell. As a pastor, there's something I think God gives pastors that you can read people pretty well. Not always, but most of the time. I can, I, I can go to camp and see a bunch of teenagers that I can pretty well read where, they're at, where they are spiritually by just their countenance. You can just about tell. There are people who come visit the church and you can just about tell where they're at. When we came, uh, before we came to this building, we were meeting in the school next door, and that was the auditorium, and this building was softball field, and we played some games for the teens and stuff. So when we were over there, a man that was with the Lord today was such a great friend, a help, and a founding person of this church, really, is Dan Jones. And he came into my office next door. He had 
we had a Bible study. New Departure used to be there, and uh, he worked at New Departure, and there were some guys that had gotten saved, and he was one of them. And he came into my office. Somebody had brought him over, and he sat down, and he said, my wife's another man, my little daughter, and he said, I don't know what it's going to take, but if I lose her, I lose her. I've got to get right with God. And he got saved. A few weeks later, his wife, Dolores, came. And she had the most miserable, you won't believe this, but she had the most miserable countenance of anybody I've ever seen in my life. Miserable. And she sat there through the service, and I thought, that'll be it. She'll never be back. But she came back. She came back for a few weeks. And then finally, she got saved. One day, I said to Dolores, somebody told me, they said, you know, I think she can do secretarial work. And I said, really? I'd never thought of that. I thought she worked in cafeteria at a public school. But so I talked to her, and I said, you ever thought of being a secretary? We need a secretary for the school. And she said, well, I would, if I can, you know, I'd be happy to try. And so she came as a secretary, and everybody knows her, knows how amazing she was. Amen. And she never, I mean, she would never say anything negative about anybody. I mean, she was so kind and, uh, and such a loving person and happy in the Lord. But I could, I could uh, she did shorthand, she'd type a letter. I could say, now I want you to type a letter. She'd Back then, you had a typewriter. Some of you young people don't know what that is, but they had a typewriter, and you put a piece of paper in it, had a ribbon on it, and you type everything, and then you'd make a mistake, you'd back it up and white it out with some white out. And I'd say, you know, I want you to type a letter. And then I'd say, no, no, I changed my mind. Or she'd take the paper out. i said, no, I am going to write, and she'd put it back in. I could do that all day. She'd just, whatever you want me to do, I'll do it. And her payday came, and I gave her a check, and she said, what's this? I said, well, it's your check for what? I said, oh, you, you, you've been working here, and, you know, we're going to pay you. Oh, I get paid for this? I said, no, no, I didn't mean that. I'm sorry. <laughs> you would never believe, when you saw her the first time, that she would be like she became. Her countenance changed. And became I mean, one of the best Christians in this church. I mean, that's amazing what God can do in a person's life. It came from the inside. No one is forcing her to look like a church secretary or fit into the Christian school. What came out of her was from inside. It's in her mind. It had changed. Both of them with the Lord today. And miss them. You know, they're close friends. We miss them. So how do you get a pure heart? How do you get a pure mind? Well, it begins with salvation. We've already emphasized that. It's the moment you trust the Lord as your Savior, you're born again. You have a a new life. You're a new person. Literally a new creation, the Bible says. So we are now in Christ, and Christ is in us, and we have a relationship with Him. He's our Father. We cry out through the Spirit, Abba, Father. And now we have one who continues to work in our mind to make us more holy. Initially, they have something we didn't have, a power. I like the way, I just can't get over it. The country preacher said, when you get saved, you get a new want to. And I can't get over it. To me, that's the simplest explanation, that you now have a desire you never had before. That comes from God. That's the Holy Spirit in you. And then we get guidance from authority. 
There are those that help us. You know, the Ten Commandments were a schoolmaster to bring people to Christ. It set up a standard. And so there are standards. We have standards in our Christian school. We have standards for the teachers and, and staff members and things like that. But the holiness comes from the heart. It sets a standard of holiness, but it has to come from the heart. But good people can guide others into holiness. Lester Olaf, who is with the Lord today, had a ministry to youth that were rebellious. Often they were on drugs and lived in immorality. And some of them were children of pastors. And he would bring them into his home, and he had hundreds of them. We'd sent some people there years ago. And so these kids had no discipline. I mean, their lives were a mess. They were, their mind was twisted. And he's, he said, look, I know you don't have any standards, but until you get some, use mine. <laughs> well, it's really not a bad thing to do. Just You don't have to have his standard, but if you don't have any, you don't know where you're at, then start there. And develop something off of that. So we can gain a certain amount of guidance from others. That uh, Let's go to Titus chapter 2. This, I think, helps explain this. Titus 2 and verse 1. But speak thou the things which become sound doctrine, that the aged men be sober, grave, temperate, sound in faith, in charity, and patience. Now that what he's saying is that men should be uh, a guide or a model to the young men. And the church, certainly fathers to sons, but the men as a whole. They, they should exemplify seriousness, temperance, faith, charity, and patience. And the aged women likewise, that they be in behavior as becometh holiness, not false accusers, not given to much wine, teachers of good things, that they may teach the young women to be sober to love their husbands, to love their children, to be discreet, chaste, keepers at home, good, obedient to their own husbands, that the word of God be not blasphemed. So the idea is the older women set an example for the younger women. Now as a parent, you can tell your child, here's what you say. You don't say that. You don't tell people to shut up. You don't tell people. You don't talk like that. It's a parent's job to do that. Doesn't mean the child gets it and makes that a conviction, but that's a that's your job to help bring them along, to set a standard for them to react to. You know, they might you might say, Well, you're not going out of the house looking like that. You know, and you come back in here and change. You're gonna do this. Well, no, you're not going with those people. You know, if everybody else is doing it. If they told you to jump off a bridge, you're gonna jump off a bridge. We just heard that recently. No, you're not going to do that. You don't do it. You're not doing what everybody else is doing. Why? Because the parent is trying to give some guidelines. It doesn't mean that their heart's going to, or their mind, they, they got it, but it's going to help them to see a standard. You know, there's a book by, uh, I think it's Ed Tripp. He said, nurturing a child's heart. And you can nurture the heart so that not only do they, they follow your guidelines and standards to a great degree, but they develop their own in the right spirit. 
So there is something that happens through guidance of leaders and authority that, you know, even the, the police and even uh, the government, there are certain people in authority that we can show respect for them. And there's an element of godliness that causes us to do it. You know, there are people in positions that I don't necessarily agree with, but I respect their position. They're in a position of authority. So the older women have a vital role to set an example by the way they act, the way they dress, their faithfulness in church, their spiritual life. There's something about it that people see that. They just see it. You, you may not even talk to someone, yet they, they see you. They watch you. So there is a guidance that comes to help develop the heart, prepare the heart, so they can receive what God has for them. Imagine a child that grew up with had a father that beat them all the time, and they, you know, that's their perspective of, of a man or of a father. And now you've got to teach them to have respect for God, the Heavenly Father. That's a stretch for them. It's hard for them to get that because they weren't guided along the way. Had they had a father that they respected and who loved them and, and met their needs, he represented God in some ways, then it's a lot easier to trust in God. So there is a role that others play as parents, as just members of a church, as Christian people, to set an example. And even though none of us are perfect, if you're trying to live a godly Christian life, that has an impact on others. By the way you talk, the things you do, your faithfulness to God, the way you dress, all those things are important. I remember a, there was a couple, I think they, they sang, they uh, were a young couple and they traveled around, and they, they came to our church for a special occasion and sang. And he had a car that was not a new car, but he apologized, oh, usually I have my car clean. I, uh, you know, I, you know, I'm sorry, you know, it's a bad testimony, and I have my car clean. And I thought, we've got McDonald's bags on the floor of our back, you know, not washed the car, you know, there's sand and grit and dirt, and I thought, He's, his car looks like it's perfectly clean, and, and it, you know, it taught me something. I said, you know what, I need to take care of my car, I need to keep it clean, you know, I need to yourself, just keep yourself clean, looking good and looking, I mean, it's, all those things are important because you represent the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. I don't know if you know this, there are very few people who wear a suit anymore. Are you aware of that? If you walk out in the, like, I'll say I'm at Walmart at some point, people keep coming up and asking me, can you tell me where this is in the, in the store? They think I work there. And if I'm in my suit and I go anywhere, I, I know that somebody's coming up and I thought, oh, I'm going the other way. <laughs> They're just not used to seeing anybody in a suit. And not only that, I mean, I, mean, I hate to say this, but people are half naked in the summer. I mean, it's, it's terrible. But as a Christian, you want to dress right so that people see modesty that comes from the heart. And it does show outwardly. In Matthew chapter 23, he talks about those that outwardly they conform, but inwardly they were not pure. He said, Well, unto you scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you pay tithe of mint and anise and cumin, to have omitted the weightier matters of the law, judgment, mercy, and faith. 
These ought you to have done, but not leave the other undone. Ye blind guides which strain at an ant and swallow a camel. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you may clean the outside of the cup and of the platter, but within they are full of extortion and excess. Thou blind Pharisee, cleanse first that which is within the cup and platter, the inner person, that the outside of them may be clean also. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for ye are like unto whited sepulchres, which indeed appear beautiful outward, but are within full of dead men's bones and of all uncleanness. Even so you also outwardly appear righteous in a man, but within you are full of hypocrisy and iniquity. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you build the tombs of the prophets and garnish the sepulchres of the righteous. All of the efforts they were making didn't make them any more holy, any more righteous. But the outward can be reflected by what happens inward. Your countenance, the fact that you take care of things, your body, your life, where you go, what you do. First Timothy, we didn't get to this point, but in chapter 2, verse 9, it says, In like manner also that women adorn themselves in modest apparel, with shamefacedness and sobriety, not with broided hair, gold, or pearls of costly array, but which becometh women professing godliness with good works. It's not saying that you should dress shabby. What he's saying is you can't make that the central focus of your life. That will not hide the corruption from within. So it is important that they see your godliness, your good works. And they can tell. People will tell. But when we are not what we should be, we are not godly and we are not a person of modesty in our heart, not a person of holiness, we can become that. The church at Corinth initially had a lot of error, a lot of sin. Things were going on they needed to deal with. And we believe they did deal with those things. And we get to 2 Corinthians. It's a rich book of depth of what God did in their heart and life. Chapter 7, he said this about them, verse 10. For godly sorrow worketh repentance to salvation not to be repented of, but the sorrow of the world worketh death. For behold, the selfsame thing, that you sorrowed after a godly sort, what carefulness it wrought in you, yea, what clearing of yourselves, yea, what indignation, yea, what fear, yea, what vehement desire, yea, what zeal, yea, what revenge. In all things you have approved yourselves to be clear in this manner. Now think about that. They, they were the most criticized church of all the writings in the New Testament. And then Paul says, I wrote to you and I corrected some things. And he said, you're now clear. You're clear in this matter. You've done the right thing. Well, you give a lot of credit to someone like that. Boy, he said, who would want to name their church Corinthian Baptist Church? <laughs> no, you know, usually you wouldn't want to do that. But in reality, they became a godly church. Right? They, they turned to the Lord. They obeyed. They followed God. They sought holiness. Holiness comes from a renewing of the mind. Romans 12, verse 2, says, Be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God.
So there is a constant, ongoing renewing of the mind. And tonight I hope we just become a little more conscious of how much the world creeps in, how much it affects us, and that we renew our mind in the Word of God and the things of God and our spirit, our attitude, our love for the Lord, our love for the lost souls. And that God would renew that within us. We can turn to Him. We can repent. We can get right. You know, do we care about God? Do we care about holiness? And if we do, He can say, you're clear. And you go to sleep at night and say, as best I know, I'm right with the Lord. I'm at peace. Let's bow for prayer.